First You Think is a not-for-profit ministry of the First Unitarian Church of Des Moines. Support us at ucdsm.org today. I received an invitation this week to a conference I've attended before, hosted by Middle Church in New York City. It's a progressive interracial Protestant church in the heart of Greenwich Village. The conference of faith leaders and activists from all over the country, days of workshops, services, interfaith organizing. This year's theme is Dismantling Fascism with Fierce Love. That sounds so radical and edgy and boundary pushing for religious people, but is it though? (laughs) In these times we're in, in this country we're in, wouldn't a passionate takedown of fascism just common sense? So I scrolled down through the email and found this statement. At Middle Church, we hold these truths. Love is a public ethic that demands a just society. All bodies and genders are divine and deserve safety. Abortion is essential health care. Racism is evil. Our addiction to guns is killing us, as we saw this morning. Living wages aren't negotiable. We are in a climate emergency. This is not a Christian. The Supreme Court is not God. So again, radical Christian church, or radical in the literal sense to the very taproot of what it church, what it means to be a just society, what it means to be what they might call at middle church, people of God, and we might call people siding with love. This actually seems like a generic checklist of what it means to be basically minimally moral and decent. And they might not have used exactly the same words, but I think the people who founded that church in 1729 would have recognized this new statement as a right and fitting evolution of their original intent to establish on earth of God, what we might call building beloved community. Sometimes the edgy thing is actually just the right and necessary thing. No less reason to cherish and defend it. When I first moved to Minnesota years ago, you know what? You all have an important role, but it's not till way later you're going to get so tired standing up. So you'll know when it's your time to stand up. These guys are going to stand and read. So I'm so sorry for miscuing you. So you're welcome to stand up. You stand or sit, whatever you want to do. But I just wanted to give you a choice. (laughs) When I first moved to Minnesota years ago from Massachusetts, I was surprised to learn that Henry David, whose wild and radical imagination I had long had traveled once to Minnesota also, to the outer rim of what was considered then, if not the far west, then certainly the far fringe of so-called civilization, so-called by white Europeans in Boston and New York. So I think a lot about this different drummer who boasted once of having traveled widely in Concord, 
Massachusetts and almost nowhere else, but whose writing shaped the moral imagination of Tolstoy, Gandhi, Dr. King, so many others profoundly. He was a mystic, a philosopher, a naturalist, a war resistor, tax resistor, abolitionist, conductor on the Underground Railroad. Once again, radical things. And in the moment, necessary things. He was by most accounts antisocial, awkward, arrogant, and gentle, noisy, and quiet. We think of Thoreau as a recluse, nobly withdrawing to the secluded purity in his hermit. But that was just a two-year exercise, during which at least once or twice a month, he walked out to have his laundry done by his mother. Right? He walked out for dinners with friends all the time and invited people in a steady stream of visitors nonstop. He was not a hermit, but emphatically engaged, actively, intellectually, morally, physically touching and touched by the world. Unusual, weird, but the way many of us claim to want to be. The massive lives of quiet desperation. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately and not when I came to die, discover that I hadn't lived. He went for the same reason some of us come to church on Sundays, wild, necessary reasons. In 1861, the year he died, Henry Thoreau made his first and only visit to the Midwest. Well, his doctor had advised a change of the prairie cure, which was then all the rage, this strange widespread belief that the humid summer air out here could heal the body and the spirit. The companion he was with, Horace Greeley, said, those here are as large as pigeons. All right. The same ones we know now. Hundreds of people came in the middle of the 19th century, riding the Railroad wrapped in blankets full of hope and ignorance about tuberculosis, coughing blood, and breathing infection all the way out. So Thoreau came like that by rail. He came up the Mississippi past La Crosse and Wabasha and Red Wing, these exotic places, and then went further west by carriage and on foot. This he would ever go from Concord his health, but there was this deeper mm, westering restlessness that he wrote about. In an essay, he said famously, the West of which I speak is but another name for the wild. And what I've been preparing to say is that in wildness is the preservation of the world. So this was a pilgrimage. He had an uncanny grasp of the meaning of his moment his historical moment, the meaning of that moment for the nation. In his journals especially, it's clear that he knew and he could articulate with this steady, chilling accuracy what westward expansion of white people was going to mean, what industry and commerce and the railroad and manifest destiny and greed was going to do to the sacred balance of land and indigenous people, and the bison and the blue moral compass of the country. 
he could see it. And he reminds me sometimes of a slug, Greta Thunberg, uncanny, able to see what other people can't or won't, though it's right there. So near the end of his life, with his own sickness inside him, he came west to where another life, this larger life, was also ended with a different, more comprehensive sickness. And when he stood on the rim of the prairie, on the outskirts of this new little city, Minneapolis, he knew he would be among the see that ocean of grass. And he knew this did nowhere else on this planet. And when he watched Governor Rand annual payment of $20 to each brave at the Lower Sioux Agency on the Mississippi, which was at the time a little side excursion that tourists could go on. A world was imploding right there. He knew it was genocide. He stayed for three weeks. And I have wondered ever since I learned about the Perot might have found out here if he had been seeking, in addition to fresh air, any signs of liberal religion on the plains. He was not a Unitarian, but we know he was in committed relation most of his friends. And there's no question that he left his mark on us profoundly. He did not claim our tradition, but I think we've claimed his and all his wild and necessary ambiguities. He was a scientist mystic a rigorous empiricist who loved the sacred texts of India, a poet and a pencil maker, activist, contemplative. He was consistently paradoxical. He was the person who coined the phrase civil disobedience for nonviolent direct action, and he lived it. And yet he and eulogized John Brown, the abolitionist who chose other methods and is remembered still by some as a terrorist. Thoreau was not a Unitarian, nor was he a Christian. He didn't belong to any church with doors. He said at the end that a snowstorm was more to him than Christ, more real in its radiance, more present in its power to affect him. Asked him on his deathbed if he'd made his peace with God. Did not know that we had ever quarreled. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if he had bothered to look, if he had wanted to look religion out here in 1861. Had he swung down into Iowa on that trip, he would have come face to face with these wild packs of German free thinkers, rampant vocal since the 1840s, some of the churches and called Unitarian preachers from the East with their blasphemous sermons about the personhood of Jesus and the evidence of archaeology. He would have found the Western Unitarian Conference in its ninth established year out here, already drifting from, but not quite yet in conflict with, the American Unitarian Association in Boston. Under the leadership of Jenkin Lloyd-Jones, who worked amazingly from Cleveland to Denver, from Duluth to Kansas City, right, on a horse, the Western Conference embraced and encouraged this broader, modern humanist Unitarianism, and it spread from state to state like prairie fire. And had he come not even 15 years later than he did, seen and maybe been astounded by 
this powerful network of women ministers who served or founded five Universalist and Unitarian churches between 1860 and 1930, mostly in Iowa, some of them these fragile little windblown country churches, some substantial congregations in places like Kalamazoo, Sioux City, and Des Moines. Young men flushed with privilege or competing out east for prestigious pulpits. Congregations were often served by women who pressed against the Unitarian establishment, against the rules, against the odds, got educated, even though the Unitarians did not want them, and they willingly moved west where the young men did not want to go. Another unimagined, wild, necessary thing. Most of you know this story. Their names are fading from memory. Florence Buck, Caroline Crane, Marion Murdoch, Eliza Tupper Wilkes, Ida Hilton, Mary Jenny, Eleanor Gordon, Mary Augusta Safford, who across hundreds of miles organized all these women into a reliable network of mutual aid. Their collaboration meant survival. They spelled each other when they got sick, each other's churches. They traded experience in teaching for experience in Collaboration was survival, and it was an unprecedented way of sharing power. For the good of all, they raised everybody up. They preached a social gospel moving further, faster from humanity than most of their male colleagues dared to. Equality, abolition of slavery, universal suffrage, the rights of children and workers, and children who were workers. They preached humanist ethics, spiritual integrity, and some they preached from the Bible. They ran their churches not as hierarchies, but cooperatives. They encouraged the leadership of young men and women and sent the women east to college and then seminary at their own expense. And in all these unimagined, wild, necessary ways, they lived their own lives deliberately. Some married men, most of them didn't, in same-sex partnerships or singly, they reinvented everything. And this was the Iowa Sisterhood. They built practical, plain churches that looked like sunny rooms for children and cozy parlors and these huge working kitchens, these classes in and meetings and suppers and town hall debates, as well as church on Sunday. Their sanctuaries were informal spaces where farmers could come in with their muddy boots and working clothes and feel peaceful and at home. And in place of a cross room in the corner, or books, or flowers, or grasses from the world outside, and the churches filled. It was not uncommon for some of these women to address 300 people on a Sunday morning. Mary Safford, who came to this church in 18 years, established at least nine other congregations over her long career on her own and nurse. So to conservative critics, the Reverend Celia Celia Parker Woolley of Chicago wrote back, a simple natural piety pervades the hearts of all the worshipers in this church. Women and men of full 
glowing conviction and inspiring purpose that keeps their direction. The ideal Unitarian church will rest of exclusion, but instead on the broadest base of fellowship, welcoming to its communion all thoughtful, truth-seeking minds. Character, not creed, will be the test of our religion. Belief in this church does not constrain the mind, but opens it. We place our trust in that which is above and beyond us, the source of everything from which we came. We place our trust in that which is near and all around us, the natural universe with its wide and everlasting laws. We place our trust in one another as friends and fellow workers. Many of the including this one, are still thriving now. So this was an unimagined, bold, edgy thing these young women were doing and the congregations that embraced them. But was it, though? Or was it just common sense in that moment? Not just to let them preach because no one else would come, but to reimagine church entirely and theology entirely and public entirely in a moment when that was what was needed with the country still bitterly divided from the recent still bitterly divided the economy shaky the known world shifting in all kinds of unsettling ways wasn't common sense in such a moment more or less to say in this church we hold these truths love is a public ethic that demands a just society. All bodies are divine and deserve safety. Women can lead. Racism is evil. Living wages aren't negotiable. Science is real and exciting, and in fact, the source of our spiritual wonder. This is not a Christian nation. They were beloved community. You have such a proud history. Last Sunday, I met with the board of trustees here to write a mid-year report UUA and informal, the same UUA that to and saying, ah, but we're friends now. An informal assessment of these first months in your transition time. It was a beautiful conversation because although it's so clear there's a lot to work on, it's that what matters most in this church, your best, most important work, has been moving forward all along through the coming and leaving of ministers and staff. The work has been held securely all along in your hands. So this was a joy. We had so many examples. Pastoral care, mostly lay-led, steady. Your vision for religious education and ministry to families, big-hearted and steady. Your sacred celebrations, both here on Sunday and in all kinds of other ways. Love of community, from circle suppers to potlucks to unity circle and small groups, all these bonds of fellow assistant public witness, which is all lay-led. The passion for justice and freedom, which defines this place. Your work with Amos, 
and Family Promise and the Interfaith Alliance and your Faith in Action Partners, Pachamama Alliance, your work for GLBTQI equality and climate justice and in support of immigrants and refugees and asylum seekers. None of this has wavered because it's who you are intrinsically. It is in your And that's true whether you are a longtime member here or whether you are new this time for the first time today. Because you hold the history all together, it belongs solely to none, only to everyone. So back in November, I met with your social justice ministry team, and they shared with me this guides them as they think not just about what the church should be doing, but why. How the work is more than work. It is holy work. Their covenant is not exactly official, I don't think. I don't think it's been formally adopted. It's kind of a mashup. It's from other UU congregations. So it's just like the Bible, a loose-leaf sacred text that guides and grounds the work. And it moved me so much to hear it. We were all on Zoom, and I'm like, wait, what did you just say? So I've asked them to share it with you. Now you can get up. Because it's so beautiful. As the social justice support team of the First Unitarian Church of Des Moines, We are moved by the deep, relational, and transformational presence of love. Love calls us to the sacred work of seeking justice. With courage and humility, we commit to seek together a justice through which we can fulfill to reshape fear, greed, oppression, and violence into lives of caring, collective thriving, peace, and mutual liberation to create together a community that we can call beloved. To support and in this work, we promise to be mindful of the common spirit of this place on earth, the first peoples, and all beings who lived here before us and those who come after, recognizing that we're intertwined, shaping and being shaped by other beings and the land we inhabit. To seek to widen the circle of inclusion by following the wisdom and direction of those who most directly experience oppression and injustice, understanding that our liberation is bound together. To be unsettled and alert in the world, consistently seeking justice while knowing our and the work ongoing. To be present to both the emotional challenges of justice work and to the unexpected moments of grace within it. To embrace our multiple perspectives and heard respectfully while remaining committed to the work within and through friction, discomfort, and difference. 
to commit to learning about ourselves and one another with humility while seeking to dissolve harmful divisions among us, utilizing restorative justice to treat and ourselves with love and kindness as we work for a common good. To allow a gracious and gentle use of humor to call us back to what's important and real. When we fail promises to each other, we will offer ourselves and others forgiveness and begin again, rooted always in the spirit of compassion, faith, and love. Thank you. So that's pretty basic, right? And decent, and it is not radical, and it is radical. It's to the root of what matters or should to a church in the world in 2023. It is wild in our current culture and necessary to speak and act and live by what is true and beautiful and good again and again, and to name it beautifully. It's good to remember that what this church is, is unusual and weird in a good way. They might not have used exactly the same words as the Social Justice Covenant, but I believe that Ida Hilton, Marie Jenny Howe, Gertrude von Petzold, Eleanor Gordon, and Mary Safford, your former ministers, would have recognized this statement and your mission statement and other things you say so well as a right and fitting evolution, original intent to make a church here where no church was, with doors and windows open to everybody who needs to come and to every new idea. What's different now is that so many others share your vision and your intention, this orientation of the spirit. Progressive congregations of all kinds, from mosques to synagogues to liberal Christian churches and others, not churches at all, leading on moral witness and a relevant, reverent spirituality that speaks comfort in this moment and courage to our moment. You are heartily companioned by others who count on you to shine. From Teresa Soto, UU minister in our own time. In this community, close. We don't always know what comes next, but that cannot dissuade us. We don't always know just what to do, but that will not mean we're lost in the wilderness. We rely on the certainty beneath our values and ethics. We are the people who return to love like a North Star and to the truth that we are greater together than alone. Our hope does not live in some glimmer of an indistinct future. Rather, we know the way to the world of which we dream by covenant, by covenant, and by the movement forward of one right action and the next, we know we will arrive.